And welcome back to Afterburn After Hours. Sitting at the table, we have a special guest today, but before we bring him on, I want to welcome Cassie and Will back, everybody's favorites. Hello, hello. <laughs> You're, hello. You are, you are the favorites. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I've heard that multiple times. <laughs> I mean, you met that you met the the the, the member at Southside, and yeah. she was blown yeah. away by you guys. Yeah, I had another <laughs> member um, Monday who loved our dry try episode. Yeah, see, there we go. so you guys are favorites. Yep, love it. Okay, so, all right. So we have a special guest, and he is joining us from virtually. So we don't have him in studio, but that most of our guests we we bring on virtually. His name is Clayton Eckert, and he is a D one football player. University of Missouri, and he's been on The Bachelor. He just released a book called 180 Degrees, and then motivational speaker around mental wellness and mental health. So Clayton, welcome to the show. Yeah, I had to ask you guys, uh, how's it feel to be the favorite? Because I, know. I, have, I have not been. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Your time will good. come. Your time yeah, will that's come. Right. All in due time. No, I appreciate y'all having me on here. I'm super excited to have this conversation center around mental health or wherever else we go. Um, I just think it's a conversation worth having, but we just don't have it enough. Yeah. And one thing that, you know, really for us, we've the last probably three months is mental health has been part of our, our mission just locally in our community is raising more awareness. We did a men's event uh, with Roan, the clothing company, and their oh, yeah. big, their big mission, actually Nate's on one of our podcasts. It, it's, it's back. Go listen to it. Uh, but he's his big mission is men's mental health and just having the conversation, just bringing it up. Not even necessarily, you know, it doesn't have to be in depth. It's just let's let's make people aware of it and then let's start the conversation. So what we've done is we've started in our region uh, a men's workout. It's called the Collective, and once a month we get together, they work out, and then we have like a thirty minute just connection time afterwards where we just talk. And sometimes it goes different places, but it's just allowing the platform where people feel like it's okay to just have a conversation. And just like you said, bring awareness. Yeah. And I think that's so very powerful because I can speak for myself and many other men that I've spoken to. Um, and it's not just men, it's also women, like having a place where you feel comfortable to, to be vulnerable is critical uh, because the second somebody doesn't feel safe, they're not going to open up and subject themselves to potentially ridicule. And and that's a lot of what I've read about and what I've experienced. Most people keep to themselves. They suppress those emotions because they're fearful of the judgment of others uh, and how they may be perceived. And so uh, because of that, they just keep quiet and they allow those those issues to bubble up or stack on top of each other. And what you end up seeing is um, somebody becomes overwhelmed and then they feel hopeless because they see a mountain of problems and they think, how can I fix this? I don't even know where to start. Um, and on top of all of that, because we're not having the conversations, most people don't know how to where to begin. They're like, where do I start breaking this down? I don't even have the words to correctly like formulate the thoughts in my head because we never practiced it. So um, that's something that I saw. Uh, in my own life, uh, I just was raised to, you know, go run over there and hit that person as hard as you can. Not outside of football. No fighting. Just, just popping people on the streets. But um, that was what I was told. Like, you're put your hand in the dirt, uh, you know, rub dirt on it when you're hurt. And, uh, you know, you cry behind closed doors if you're going to cry at all. But uh, don't show any signs of emotion because that's weakness. And that's what I was told. That was a toxic masculine environment around me. Um, and so I just kept suppressing everything and I would just hit people harder on the field. And 
I would just get bigger and stronger. And I just thought this is the way that I'm, I have to be able to release my emotions because talking about it is only going to make me less of a man, which was a very common phrase that was used by men that were vulnerable as I was growing up that, oh, he's, he's acting like a girl. Like, right. and that's what was said by, by kids. And so naturally we were like, well, we don't, I don't want to open up then because that was seen as a bad thing, which it's not right. Like we know that as mature individuals that being seen as a girl is not a bad thing, right? It's not a bad thing to be in tune with your emotions, but yet as men and immature men at that, um, that was the narrative. And so, um, we have to break those stigmas. And I think it's just a matter of having the conversations and the more men that speak up, it's going to start challenging those narratives. And then all of a sudden they're going to go, wait, like that's the rock over there. That's Dwayne Johnson, which I've heard, seen him talk about mental health and uh, the people are like, look at him. You know, he doesn't, there's no way you can say he's less of a man. That man is the architect of a man. (laughs) (laughs) He's as manly as it gets. You know, he's got the deep voice. He's jacked. He's a good dude. And like, that's what young kids and, 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 and individuals that can't understand or have that stigma in their head, they need to start seeing these things to kind of shock the system, to get them to go, wait, this doesn't make any sense. Cause that dude's that's a real man right there right and in their heads they see a you know, real man what, what are real men like i think real men are the ones that express their emotions but we need to challenge those narratives and we do that by having conversations that kind of depicts what i was going to ask you then uh so you pretty much grew up in the locker room mm-hmm. yes when, you know you can't go play d1 and go past that if you didn't play in middle school high school peewee whatever so you grew up playing sports in the locker room i'm sure right Yes. Yeah. I, all I knew was football. Um, and I played other sports, but I was horrendous at them. So um, <laughs> I just, I just stick to football. I was like, Hey, I can get bigger and stronger and, and I can hit and run into people. And that's my job. So uh, I made a career out of that, but um, yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of stigmas and there are a lot of beliefs as far as, and, and, and also projections that others put on to football players that, um, you know, the stereotypes and the expectations that, that these, they're these brutes, um, that that symbolizes what a, again what society for a while said oh it, like that's that's what a man's supposed to be and I just think like at least that's what I was told growing up all the time like oh you know if you want more respect get bigger get stronger get faster be better than everybody else um, but those we know that those metrics now don't apply to how good of a person you are you can be bigger stronger faster and be a terrible human being. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, so that's, that's, true. that's not the metrics. Those aren't the metrics that we should go by, but those are the metrics that again, many kids are kind of raised um, because they're just, Oh, if you want to be more respected, go, uh, go accomplish more things, go do more things, be better than the person next to you. And then you'll get the respect. And it's just recording in progress. We're just not, you know, that's, that's where I think we need to start challenging again, those narratives and say, this isn't what makes you a better human being. What makes you a better human being is practicing empathy is is withholding judgment is being curious um you know these things the more you do those the the more well-rounded you'll be the more open-minded and the more you'll be able to um you know connect with many different individuals and realize that life isn't black and white there's a ton of gray area sure and the, and the locker room is not really the place to open up not at all <laughs> yeah no, no. um I'll never forget uh, in college. Um, so I struggled, I started struggling with my body dysmorphia in seventh grade. I didn't realize that um, body dysmorphia can be you know, re- related to being bullied, which I was bullied plenty. I was much smaller. Um, you know, I was like in seventh grade, I was I mean, five, six, a hundred pounds. I mean, I was tiny. 
Um, and so I was bullied a lot and then got into fights and I didn't feel good enough. You know, girls wanted to date me. I was called big brother by all the girls. And so not feeling good enough led to me starting to pick apart my body and, and, and say, well, why do people like me? Oh, it's because you look like this. Well, in college, uh, you know, a couple of my teammates caught wind that I didn't like the way my body looked. So what did they do? They called me bad body act and they just kept saying it because they knew it ate at me. Um, and it, it did. It tore, it tore me down because it's just the immaturity of those individuals to be like, I see how I can I can get this, tear this kid down. And I'm going to do it. And I don't really know what their intentions were, but they kept saying it. Bad body act. Man, you do all this working out and you still look terrible. You know, you, you look you're, you, and, and I and I would then get, you know, get my body fat red and it would be low. They'd be like, you don't look like that, though. You look like you're five or 10 percent more body fat. You mm -hmm. just have a bad body. You have a weird body. So I just was like, screw it. I'm not going to open up because the second I was vulnerable, it was weaponized against me. Yeah, that's, man, that's a tough thing. The bias morphia, I mean, back when I was competing, you know, you never feel like you're lean enough. You never feel like you, you know, you, you all, you're always in bodybuilding, you are being judged based off your mm -hmm. body, like yeah. literally. It's the sport. <laughs> <laughs> and yep. and it causes such an issue. Like I remember my first show, uh, the, my, my coach was at the Arnold. He put me on a stage in front of, you know, the, the expo, which was like hundreds of thousands of people walking by and stripped me down. And I started posing on this like little table that they had set up at their booth. And people just walking by were like, oh, you need bigger shoulders or whatever. And it's like, you know, that, uh, so that's, that, but then I'm also like two weeks out. So I'm like at my leanest, I have no energy. Like, like I'm at the suck phase. Then I have like these people yelling at me like, well, it's too late to fix it now. Like, I guess I'm just going to have small shoulders, you know? And so it's a tough thing, man, because you know how much work and effort you put into whatever crafting your genetic makeup is. And it's like, regardless of how much time and effort energy you put in your genetic makeup is only going to let you make up so far and Correct. and that's the hard part is you know we've talked about it before is yeah. you know comparison is a thief of joy where you know my body is my body i can't make it look like anybody else's mm -hmm. and so getting out of that mindset of like what's the ideal image uh and and i struggled with that for years i mean you know there's there's still times i'm like ooh, i'm like oh, after the holidays i need you know i need to shred down a little bit <laughs> Even after like, now we're competing against not even reality. Now we're competing against massive Photoshop. We're competing filters. filters. We're Social competing media. against, you know, Absolutely. We're, we're competing against no, truly not reality. Like, these people may look like this for a very short period of time for a show or whatever, or there's enhancements, there's plastic surgery. It's not reality. You can't have it. Is it true there's a filter that you can take a video and it, filters you in the video to look at whatever I heard, I heard this recently. Yeah. Well, there's a way to do it. There's a fun one where if you're a bigger guy, you can take a picture at an angle and then rotate it and it widens you up here. Huh? And it doesn't, Interesting. and it's not Photoshopped because it's, you won't, you can't see like any of the bent lines or whatnot, but it just twists you. And so it gives you these like superhero shoulders. So is this making it worse, Clayton, these kind of things? <laughs> yes. Absolutely. A thousand percent. Yeah. I think, you know, when we were younger, uh, social media, I remember, I'll never forget my cousin. Um, he, he told me about this thing called Facebook uh, and it had just come out and he was like, but you have to have a college um, yeah, yeah. email in order to join. And so we were in high school and I said, well, this is, that just sounds dumb. Um, <laughs> then it becomes Facebook. And so, uh, but before that though, I, you know, we've always, I think as, as individuals have probably competed to some level um, or compared ourselves. And 
Um, but it used to be you would just compare yourselves to others in your hometown. The only the people that you would see within your hometown. So maybe you see yep. a couple people that have a better body in your eyes or are maybe more attractive in your eyes. And But you only compete against a couple. What's made it worse is now we see thousands of people that have a better body than what than what we perceive and what we want. And we just see this all this money and all these things. And every single day when we open up our phones, what makes it worse is the algorithm sees that you're clicking on it. So what <laughs> I know. Do, then do a hundred more. more. <laughs> yeah. So you get a hundred more. And what you end up doing and people do is they go down this rabbit hole where all of a sudden in a matter of 10 minutes, if they wanted to, they could see a hundred people that have what they want. And then now again, what it used to be was you compare yourself to two people. Now it's a hundred but then you're seeing a hundred more the next day, a mm-hmm. hundred more the next day. And before you know it, you're just like, what is my worth? Because I keep seeing all these people, so many people that have more than what I have and I, what I want. And I'm just a failure. That's mm-hmm. just not, that's the natural progression of look at all these people that have figured it out and I can't. And so then we get this negative self-talk and it just tears us down further and it tears us down further. And yet most of us continue to subject ourselves to it. Why? Because Social media is addicting. Why? Because they set the algorithms up to release dopamine so that people would get these dopamine hits so that they would get addicted. It's all over the internet. You can see that there's a, a documentary. It's really great. Uh, it, it was on Netflix. I'm blanking. The Social Dilemma, I think is what it was called. Mm-hmm. The engineers behind the apps were like, we were try, try, tried to find a way to get people to become addicted to it. So we had, you know, we did, we were able to access dopamine releases, you know, and so that would get people addicted to the social media. So why can't we get out of it? Because most of us are addicted to it. And also we just can't shut it off because if we shut it off, now we're isolated. Right Now yeah. our friends yeah. that are all online, we're not there with them. And what is one of the top reasons why individuals get, get to a really dark place mentally and consider taking their own lives? Isolation, it's right up there. So we can't isolate ourselves. We don't wanna be isolated, we're social creatures, but yet we're in this dilemma where the more times we subject ourselves to that environment, we're just becoming more unhappy. Um, and, and we don't realize how damaging that is. If every day we compare ourselves to hundred people, you're going to end up having a negative outlook on who you are as an individual. If you, if you continue that, yeah. then we have, you throw in the halo effect, which is when you see someone that has an attribute you want, or you find attractive, the halo effect is then you automatically assign them three more attributes about them that you want. So, so they, you see, they you look see, good. They must be successful. They, they must be successful or they must get a lot of girls or they have a great career, have a lot of, money. A lot you of start, money. You yeah. start applying these But things, it might not so. be true. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure at all. And it usually isn't. But to your point, I you do that a hundred times a day. You get a hundred people. You, throw, you assign, uh, each of them gets another three halos. I can't do that kind of math, but you're just... <laughs> And so now that you've put these people on a pedestal that they don't even might be on and you hear it from you know, some of the uh, bodybuilders or whatnot who they're hate themselves more than anybody. Mm-hmm. So it's a very like, but we assume, oh, you must have everything. I mean, look at abs. So you've been around professional sports players, I'm sure. Right, Clayton? Yes, yeah, I have. How many, so, and again, no names or whatever, but just in general, how many are truly happy? I mean, they've made it to the pinnacle of the 1%, the 3% of what every kid's hoping to be because they think making it to the league is going to make them happy, make them successful. But really, underneath all of it, are they really truly happy? Yeah, well, I had a cup of coffee with the Seahawks, so I, I was in and out like a bank robbery. That's what I always tell people. I was only there for two months. Um, so with that, I could only get to know the guys there so much. So mm-hmm. I, 
I really can't speak. To like I didn't have those deep conversation with, with those individuals, um, except for maybe one or two. But what I often found is most of the a- athletes at that level um, are, were very uh, re- result oriented. So we were very much like we've been our entire lives ach- achieving these results and and accruing these accolades. And that's where we placed our self-worth was in these this external validation. Oh, I, I was the best athlete in my state. And then, you know, I was drafted in the first round or whatever. And so I look at all that I've done, but this is where you see a big struggle with a lot of athletes when they come out of sports, whether it ends due to injury or whether it just ends due to them being cut. Um, a lot of them struggle with their identity because they wrapped up everything into that sport. That was their identity. And so the second you take it away from them, they go, well, I, I don't even know who I am anymore. I put everything, all my chips into this basket. Now what do I do? Because who am I really? And and so I think a lot of them, and I, I don't know about a percentage, but there's many that struggle with that post-sport identity because all they knew was football or, or basketball or whatever their sport was. And when you took that away from them, they, they, they don't really know now. Like people, I saw this personally, it was, it was tough. I went from getting a hundred messages a day, hundred different people when I was on the Seahawks, people just wanting to talk nonstop, ask me every question in the world. The second I got cut, I had five messages the next day. I mean, mm-hmm. it just fell off. And so all of a sudden you realize there was all this pseudo admiration is what I'll call it. People were just, you know, wanting to be around you because you were successful. But the second that you no longer had it, people lost interest in you. And that's really tough because a lot of athletes will be like, well, I got all this attention and now I'm not getting any of it. Why is that? Well, yeah. I must not be, you know, I must not be worthwhile to have a conversation anymore. I have no more value. Um, and so then they they go on down a spiral because they're like, if I don't have sports, then what do I have? Uh, nothing. And so I think a lot of athletes, um, if they're mindful, then they're probably happy. But if they're not mindful, then they don't realize where they're headed to once sports ends and they don't have, you know, they and, and they've all they've done is wrap up their identity in one thing. Then they're going to face the harsh reality of, well, who am I now that I lost this? Yeah, it, it, we've had this conversation so many times yeah. in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Michael Willett came on and great, great conversation. Michael about Willett identity. We talked when we talked to Alex. He he talked a little bit about that identity as an athlete. I yeah. just finished the book by Alec Ingold. Uh, it's the Seven Crucibles. Amazing book, by the way. He talks about when he was playing for the Raiders and he uh, tore his ACL. Like it stopped immediately. Like everything that he had worked for, everything that he had trained for in one play, it stopped. And he was like, then I had to figure out like, what, what's my purpose? And the Raiders don't care about me anymore. Yep. It's a business at that point. So you are no longer an asset to us. So you're therefore- making me money, you're gone. Right, yeah. So yeah, it, it, it's such a, this conversation <laughs> is so much bigger than, than I think people think it is. You know? Oh yeah. Um, so let's, so th- this is where you came out with the idea for the book. So I want to dive into that for a couple, couple minutes where basically all the things that you've s- dealt with or struggled with from a mental health aspect, you kind of came up with this whole 180 degree idea, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, what's behind that truthfully at the 180 degrees, I talk about how for a majority of my life, I had this self doubt. I talk about how the self doubt is walking down what I call the path of death and why, you know, why am I using the extreme? Well, because I was at a point a couple times in my life where I thought, why am I even doing this? You know, why am I here? Like this, I, I I'm, I'm a failure and, and I'll never, I'll never be worth it and worthwhile to anybody in their own eyes. And I got really into my head about this and, and, and started having these really negative, you know, thoughts that just kept creeping in. And so because of that self doubt, I just was walking down this path of death. 
Um, but what I found recently uh, through making an active choice to try to change my life was that I can reorient myself 180 degrees down that path of life, down that path of self-belief. Um, but how, how do I get there? And that's where in the book, I talk about six principles, six, 30 degrees at a time. And I talk about how each of them build upon the other. You can't make this change overnight, but what you can start to do is implement these principles and it'll get you to a place where ultimately you will start to believe in yourself. But it all starts with a conscious choice and a decision. And that's where, um, gr thankfully, because of what I went through, um, and, and it's there's a lot that goes into it, but um, my ego was was beaten to a pulp and for it was it was a good thing because you know i had an ego that was telling me i had it all figured out and i didn't need to be open-minded and i and you know i i had constructed this image of what a you know of, of the ultimate you know man uh and come to find out though I, I i that ego was stopping me from being able to keep an open mind to learn more about myself and so when the show after i came off the bachelor and was torn apart by the audience um you know, it really kicked my ego down into the ground. And I said, okay, I got to sacrifice this thing. I got to set it aside and I got to make this conscious decision to start to be vulnerable and learn and just open up and try to understand where everyone else is coming from. Um, and when I did that, I started to pick up different perspectives. I started to connect with people. I started to do a better job of active listening. Um, I started to have more communication uh, with better communication with individuals. I educated myself more. And all these things were a culmination of leading to me starting to see life in the many different perspectives that it can be seen in. And it made me realize that there's, you know, so many connections here and I don't feel alone and I do see that others are struggling. So with that, I do feel that there is hope that I can get out of this, you know, this pit that I'm in because others have done the same. And so it just opened my mind up. But uh, most, most people where, where you got to start at is you have to be willing to create change. And most people never make it there because their egos don't allow them to. So give us real quick. 30 seconds. What's the first principle? This way, the other five, they have to pick up the book and read. First principle is communication. Uh, and there's a reason why I have them in order because communication is something that you can start right now. Uh, somebody can go and have one meaningful conversation right after they listen to this. Um, and then I'll just, I'll give a second principle. Oh, at the very <laughs> bonus. <time. laughs> he can't. Yeah, the bonus, right? <laughs> the bonus, uh, the final principle is realization. And it's last because realizations take time. So um, I, I have it set up that way where people can go, okay, I'll focus on this first communication, then the second principle, third principle. And again, people will find they build on each other to where you get to this place of realization. Um, and everyone gets there differently. Everyone has different realizations, but those realizations are what ultimately create lifelong changes. When you start to realize, wait, that was not the right way to look at it. Let me change my approach. And then when you have those realizations, that's when you start to create that lasting change. So it communicates the first one, then there's four, and then you got a re realization. All right, Clayton, real quick, uh, how can they reach you if they want to reach out to you? Where can they get the book at? Yeah, so I keep it real simple, uh, for, mainly for myself, but everything is just funneled into my Instagram. Um, my, it's Clayton Eckerd uh, is where you can find me on Instagram. And then uh, in my in the bio there, you can click on the link. It takes you to my website, which is also ClaytonEckerd.com. And that's where I have um, a link for the Amazon link for the book. Um, and then I have a couple other things that I'm currently working on as well. So if anybody ever wants to know what's going on in my life, go to Instagram or just click on my website and you'll have all the information you need. And again, it's just Clayton Eckerd. So I, I make it simple uh, for everybody, including myself. Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> All right, dude. Hey, 
I know you got to run. Thank you so much for, for coming on, spending some time with us. Cassie Will, thank you guys. Until next time, talk to you all later. Bye. Bye.